This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. There's a popular folk hero in Puebla, Mexico, Catarina de San Juan, who Mexicans hailed as a devoted religious figure after her death in 1688. She's credited with creating the China Poblana Dress, a connection of dubious historical veracity made several centuries after her death. But Catarina is one of Mexico's most famous chinos, despite the fact that she was likely from India, not China. In fact, any Asian that disembarked in Mexico, whether from China, Japan, the Philippines, India, or even further away, was called chino. It was not a particularly beneficial classification. Chinos, under Spanish law, could be enslaved. In Dios, Asian populations could not. That's just one part of Diego Luis' historical investigation of the first Asians in the Americas in a book titled, appropriately, The First Asians in the Americas, A Trans-Pacific History. Diego is a professor in history at Tufts University. Today, Diego and I talk about Asians in the Spanish Empire, both in the Philippines and in Mexico, and some of the interesting ways that these first Asians tried to push back against their oppressors. So, Diego, thanks for coming on the show to talk about your book, you know, The First Asians in the Americas, A Trans-Pacific History. Um, you know, perhaps it's best to start with, um, <laughs> with, with, with your book's title. Uh, who exactly were the first, quote-unquote, Asians in the Americas? And, I, and, and, and for me in your book, I, I, I know uh, qualifying that term Asians is, is important, but, but who exactly were, were these people? Yeah, so thanks for having me on the show, Nicholas. Uh, the, the first Asians in the Americas, uh, the title of the book, were people who were both free and enslaved who ended up uh, traveling across the Pacific Ocean on Spanish ships from 1565 to 1815. These were the years that these Spanish ships uh, across the Pacific between the colonies in the Philippines and those of the Americas by way of Mexico. And it was on these ships that you have this enormously diverse population of people arriving um, in the Americas. And these were people that came from everywhere from as far west as uh, Gujarat in India, um, down through southern India, the Malabar coast, for example, up through Southeast Asia, uh, including the, the, what were called the Spice Islands of Indonesia. These were Ternate and Tirore, up through the Philippines, southern China, and southern Japan uh, as well. This is, this is uh, uh, an enormously diverse population um, that crosses the Pacific at this time. And these are, are precisely the people who are the subject of the history that I've written. Um, and, and one interesting thing, you note is that um, all the Asians in, in I guess, New Spain, um, they were all called Chinos, um, whether they were from India, China, Japan, Indonesia, or, or, or further afield. Yeah, so that's one of the things that really fascinated me about doing the research uh, for the book. 
was this term Chino, uh, because when you're looking at archives in colonial Mexico, you're looking at archives in Spain about Mexico, again, which is where a lot of these people ended up. Um, you see this term a lot, Chino, China. Um, and there's this question, who were these people uh, that are categorized with this word? Um, colonial Mexican society had uh, words that lumped lots of different kinds of people into categories and then ascribed laws to them. Um, so you have words uh, to describe Africans and Afro-descendants like negros and mulatos that become part of what's called the caste system or the sistema de castas, um, which again is, is a, a discourse that uses these categories, these words, in order to um, ascribe laws to those groups. And so when Asians come to the Americas, uh, again, coming from this, this wide range of locations, um, oftentimes they're called Chinos after arrival. And so Chino, you know, it literally means uh, Chinese in, in Spanish, means that in modern Spanish, meant that in Spanish at the time too. Uh, and, and so this word Chinese uh, comes to describe all of these people regardless of origin. It's the first time in the history of the Americas that you have a single word that can now refer to all people uh, who are perceived as as having originated from somewhere in in Asia, specifically coastal Asia, and uh, what that term does, I, I mean, it, it emerges in the 1590s, uh, sort of becomes more common around the turn of the 17th century, uh, and becomes really decisively implemented. Um, as the predominant label to refer to Asians by 1615 in the port where they're arriving, which is the port of Acapulco uh, in Mexico. And, uh, and it's a strange thing to, to happen um, on the one hand, because all of these people are being called Chinese. Um, and one of the reasons that that happens is because uh, one of the terms used to refer to Asia at this time uh, for people in uh, colonial Mexico was La China. So China was a stand-in uh, in some ways for the totality of Asia. Uh, and it's that kind of selective um, selective geography that then becomes the sweeping term that can refer to all Asians. It's a strange thing to happen because a lot of the people who are called Chinos when they arrive in Mexico uh, they're called other terms when they board Spanish ships in the Philippines. It's only when they disembark that they all become Chinos. For example, when they board the ships in the Philippines um, at the port of Cavite, which is just to the south of Manila, uh, which was the capital of, uh, of the Spanish colony in the Philippines, uh, when they board those ships, uh, Chino was a term that could refer only to Chinese people. So it's it's very odd that you have this kind of transformation in terms uh, that becomes decisive upon arrival in the Americas. And what this does is uh, it makes people who are called Chinos uh, vulnerable, legally vulnerable to being enslaved. Uh, and this is because many of the people who boarded those ships, they're called another term 
many of them are called indios in the Philippines. Indio um, mm. could refer to any person deemed to be an indigenous subject of lands claimed by the Spanish Empire. Indios were supposed to be um, legally free from enslavement, even if in practice that was oftentimes not the case. Now, when many people, um, indigenous Filipinos, for example, who are called indios in the Philippines become chinos in Spain and in, in uh, Mexico, um, then they can legally be enslaved, or if they're already enslaved, it legally reinforces um, their enslavability. They can also be persecuted by the Inquisition now. Um, as Chinos, they're banned from participating in certain trades. They're um, banned from carrying weapons at various times. And so there's all these laws that are now um, uh, ascribed to the people who are called Chinos after arrival. I mean, b- b- before we get into more of the history of this journey, I mean, maybe you can explain, you know, why was it that um, if you were Indios, you were uh, supposed to be at least um, I guess, uh, safe from being enslaved. But was it about being indigenous to New Spain that kind of protected you in that way? Yeah, so the, the term Indio was a global category. Uh, I think oftentimes, you know, in the Americas, we think of indigeneity as meaning a very specific thing. Um, uh, and, you know, specifically re- referring to indigenous inhabitants of the Americas. Uh, The concept of indigeneity as it existed in the early modern world within the Spanish Empire was a global one. Um, You know, Spain Spain claimed uh, the lands and oceans of everywhere between basically what's now modern day Brazil all the way to Southeast Asia. And all of the inhabitants of those lands were called Indios. And of course, this is the term that Um, Columbus infamously uses in the Caribbean uh, to describe the people that that he encounters there because of this enormous geographical confusion in which he believes he's actually arrived in Asia when in fact he is very far from from Asia. But he, he thinks that the people that he sees are Indians, literally Indians. And this is why he calls them Indios. And so that term sticks. Um, but it's it's one that can refer to any uh, indigenous vassal subject of lands claimed by the Spanish Empire everywhere from the Americas to Asia. Um, so, uh, so when you have missionaries um, like uh, the D- Dominican missionary Bartolomé de las Casas, who writes in in support of these indigenous vassal subjects. Um, and and most significantly uh, uh, to support measures like the new laws of 1542, which banned the enslavement, at least formally, again, even if in practice, the reality is quite different, but at least formally banned the enslavement of indigenous subjects, those laws would eventually apply um, to the Asian context as well. Uh, so you have this, this global concept of who Indios were that's now being revised once many of these people who are considered Indios are now arriving in the Americas. Um, so let's kind of go to the to the 
I guess the origin point of this journey, which is um, the Philippines and 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 Manila, um, you do talk about the Philippines and Manila. I think quite a bit in your book. It's it's probably roughly like the first third. Um, why is it important to talk about um, the how the how the I guess Spanish authorities um, worked with uh, and I guess ruled over? Um, Asians in the Philippines, uh, whether Filipino or Chinese or other kind of, I guess, migrants to Manila? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one of the very uh, important arguments that the book makes is that, you know, the nature of colonialism in the Philippines is what uh, generates this trans-Pacific movement in Asian peoples who are both free and enslaved. You know, I, I believe we have to look at um, the sites where people are coming from in order to understand uh, what what their experiences are in the Americas. And, you know, one of the really important things here is that, that they're, they're departing from Manila and the port of Cavite. These are Spanish colonies. These are people who have experience with... Um, with the nature of Spanish colonialism by the time that they arrive in the Americas. You know, many of them have been uh, baptized, um, have some familiarity of Catholicism. They have, they're given Hispanic names. Uh, and at least in, you know, legal records, they, they lose um, the names that they had before uh, they, they're baptized. Um and, and many of them learn to speak uh, Spanish or at, at least a kind of broken Spanish um, in Manila as well. And so all of that kind of informs their ex experiences um, of the Spanish colonial world by the time they arrive uh, in Mexico. But, you know, like, like you mentioned, the, the Philippines, uh, it, the history of the Philippines is, is one that I find absolutely fascinating and um and I wanted it to, to be a prominent part of the book because uh, Colonial Manila is really an exceptional site within the Spanish Empire, in part because of what you mentioned, because of the social demographics of the colony. Um, you know, this is a, a place where uh, Spaniards are an extreme minority uh, within Manila. You know, oftentimes they're outnumbered as much by as much as 20 or 30 to one by ch Chinese inhabitants of the colony, not to mention uh, indigenous people of the Philippines, uh, South Asians, other Southeast Asians, Japanese, who often also inhabit Manila at numbers that rival the Spanish or exceed the Spanish population. And, uh, and, and one of the really important things that that happens in Manila in the late 16th century and the early 17th century is precisely this growth of the Chinese population there that arrive in Manila to trade with Spaniards for silver that's being brought across the Pacific from, uh, from the Americas, where it's being bought, mined in extremely large quantities. Um, and they're trading that silver uh, for uh, oftentimes for Chinese goods like porcelain, like silks, lacquer, uh, and so forth, or, or simply for, for foodstuffs to sustain uh, the colony. And, um, and so that generates this increasingly large population in Manila of people 
who are not Catholic, are not Hispanicized, and they become this kind of existential threat in the Spanish mindset um, to their presence uh, in the Philippines. And so much of that first third of the book is looking at the conflicts between um, these communities, in part because many of the people who end up in uh, showing up in records, colonial records in the Americas, most of them are not uh, of Chinese origin, which to me is a very strange thing. If they sort of had this such a prominent role uh, in the Spanish Philippines, we would expect them to, uh, to show up in larger numbers in the Americas. And the fact that that doesn't happen um, kind of pointed me to, um, to what was happening in the Philippines at the same time. And so one of those flashpoints in the, the history of this conflict between the Spanish and the Chinese community uh, was an uprising, a Chinese uprising in 1603, um, which in many ways is provoked by the last couple of decades of anti-Chinese sentiment uh, on the part of Spaniards in the colony and a series of laws and, and, and abuses um, that, that um, are exacted upon the Chinese population. And so there's this uprising in 1603 that becomes a flashpoint for uh, for Asians who would who would come to cross the Pacific and in that history, um, because um, fighting against the Chinese um, on uh, in collaboration with the Spaniards becomes an avenue for social mobility uh, for uh, indigenous people of the Philippines for Jap- Japanese people uh, living in Manila as well. And it also increases the dependency of, uh, of Spaniards on these other communities too, because this population of 20,000 or 30,000 uh, Chinese in Manila, it, during this uprising, this, this war really to suppress this uprising, that population gets completely destroyed whether it's because they're driven from the Philippines or because they're just outright massacred um, by the Spanish and coalition army uh, that fights against them, um, that uh, itself uh, places uh, the Spanish colonists um, in a a relationship that heightens their dependency upon, in particular, uh, indigenous people of the Philippines. And so that begins to change the social fabric of colonial Manila, and it in fact intensifies the slave trade uh, that was active in East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, and East Africa, um, and captives from those places, uh, and and sort of encourages or motivates Spaniards to buy those captives in larger numbers uh, than they had before. And a portion of that slave trade, uh, in fact, extends across the Pacific uh, and, and that's where you get, you know, thousands of enslaved Asians ending up in, uh, in colonial Mexico. So, so for me, the history of the Philippines is extremely important in, in telling that story. Um, so obviously they have to get the, the Asians that, that, um, eventually end up in Mexico and elsewhere, uh, obviously have to cross the Pacific, um, a journey that I assume was very difficult and um, uh, very taxing, just given the technology at the time and the length of the journey. Um, but I guess from your research, I mean, what what have you like uncovered about what 
these trips were actually like. Um, I know you note that many uh, certainly did not willingly go on these ships. Many were kind of press ganged and and basically put into put into slavery. Um, but but what but what were these maritime journeys like? Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great question, and and that's one of the things that also really compelled me about um, about the history of this movement was just how extreme that journey was. I mean, today we think about the 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 trip uh, between uh, the Americas and Asia on a plane as being particularly arduous because it lasts, you know, maybe twelve or sixteen hours depending on where you're going, um, but. The Trans-Pacific journey in the early modern world lasted over six months, oftentimes, to get from uh, the port of Cavite in the Philippines to the destination, the port of Acapulco in Mexico. Uh, and after, uh, upon leave, departing the Philippines, there was no opportunity to, um, to stop and take on supplies until arriving uh, uh, in northern Mexico. And, um, and that's just, that's, that's an unimaginable journey, I think, um, from the 21st century perspective, the, uh, the ships, I mean, these ships, um, were very interesting in their time. Uh, they were primarily trade ships, um, these galleons that made the journey and because they were trade ships, um, that were bringing, you know, the, the, these, these highly coveted Chinese products, for example, or uh, South Asian textiles or Philippine textiles uh, and ceramics um, to the Americas, because those goods were, were so sought after um, by colonial elites in places like Mexico City and Lima and elsewhere, uh, the holes of the ships uh, were filled with those goods meaning that most of the people on the ships um, did not uh, have any quarters below decks uh, to sleep in, uh, especially the most marginalized people on those ships who were invariably um, either uh, Asian sailors or enslaved Asians or uh, enslaved Africans in some cases, uh, most of them had to sleep uh, on the deck of the ship. In some areas of the ships, there's there's a covered um, section under what was called the forecastle or the aft aftercastle, um, but that was still exposed to the open air. And if you didn't have a space sort of beneath um, the forecastle or the aftercastle, you were simply exposed to the elements. And these ships, in order to make the crossing, they had to rise to a very high latitude uh, by Japan uh, in order to be able to cross the Pacific because, um, because of the currents, because of weather patterns. And, um, and so oftentimes when these ships were making the crossing, uh, they were exposed to storms, they were exposed to um, bitter cold um, and that resulted in, um, in hundreds and even thousands of casualties uh, over the course of, um, of the shipping line, which again lasted from 1565 to 1815. It's 250 years uh, that these ships were crossing the Pacific. And so um, the journey was, was extreme, to say the least. Um, and, uh, and it was 
it was impossible to take on supplies uh, that would last the entire journey, um, either fresh enough fresh water um, in the ship or food. And so when rations were cut, which they almost always were by the end of the journey, um, it was these these sailors, these Asian sailors and enslaved Asians who um, who oftentimes suffered the brunt of that. Uh, so um, so this journey was was transformational in many ways. Um, it, it really it thrust everyone together onto this kind of mobile world um, for for six months or longer uh, in which. Uh, you know, religion, religious ritual was um, uh, was prominent, uh, and you know, people are speaking a wide variety of languages. And this is, I argue, in the book where um, you start to get a conception of Asian people that collapses their difference uh, on these ships because you know, so many people are are thrust into the same laboring roles on the ships. Um, that uh, that minimizes the differences between them in Spanish eyes and contributes to the creation of this Chino label um, that that um, encapsulates everybody upon arrival in Mexico. Um, so were were there any differences in how um, Asians were were treated within kind of Spain's? I guess some American colonies, because um, I mean, obviously, they when 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 Asians arrive, they do get put in this um, in this very kind of racialized system. But were there any differences between, say, Mexico and Peru um, in terms of how they treat Asians, and even between, say, New Spain and and Spain proper? Did did different parts of the Spanish Empire treat Asians differently? Yeah, I mean that's that's a complicated question, and, and that's one that's um, that was really a, a driving force uh, for for my own research in this book too. Uh, one of the things that um, that really interested me about trying to uncover the nature of uh, of these experiences uh, upon arrival in in Mexico is how um, individuals try to differentiate themselves. Uh, from this mass. And, um, and oftentimes, you, you know, the way that I track that is through license petitions. Um, and, and these are licenses to uh, carry weapons, to ride horseback, licenses to sell various goods or practice certain trades. And this is because there were um, sort of totalizing bans on the kinds of people who could do these activities. And so you have... Um, People uh, like uh, Francisco de Lima, for example, who is a South Asian uh, merchant in Mexico who petitions to be able to carry weapons uh, while he's traveling around central Mexico selling his goods. Um, and he's just one example. I mean, there's dozens of cases that, um, that I use in order to have a kind of broader look at the problems and possibilities of of social mobility for Asian subjects. To what extent um, could they argue for special exemptions and privileges that were categorically denied? And a lot of the successful cases uh, come from people who had histories of 
uh, of collaboration with uh, with Spanish authorities and institutions. Some of these people, um, you know, referenced the fact that uh, that they had fought with Spaniards uh, throughout Asia. You know, maybe there were people who fought against the Chinese in 1603 uh, or again during another Chinese uprising uh, in 1639. Perhaps there were people who joined um, Spanish wars of, uh, of invasion and conquest in um, what were called the Spice Islands, which are now in uh, uh, Indonesia or in what is now Indonesia. And, uh, and so these were people who could reference records of service or um, alternative, alternatively could reference um, their Hispanicization. Perhaps they had entered in a, into a Catholic union um, and, uh, and they were arguing that they needed these exemptions in order to be able to provide for their family, for example. Um, and so there are some ways in which already within central Mexico, you have people negotiating the limitations of, of their, their sort of new subjecthood uh, within the empire. Um, that, uh, and, and that's a question that I had when I started looking at other places within the Spanish empire as well. As you mentioned, um, there, are, there are Asians who, who travel beyond Mexico. They end up uh, on expedition, expeditions as far north as uh, you know, what's now the state of Oregon, uh, in the U.S., uh, they participate in expeditions along the Californian coast as well. Um, but we have examples of people uh, who end up in uh, the colonial capital of Santiago in, uh, in Guatemala. And you have people who continue traveling further south and end up in Lima in Peru. Um, as you mentioned, we have people who cross the Atlantic as well. They travel across Mexico, cross the Atlantic, end up in Spain. I mean, these are truly global trajectories and global lives um, uh, of, of people who who, um, who who are traversing the full extent of the the European imperial world at that time. Uh, and so, when they do travel, um, they do continue to negotiate this categorization, um, and you have this kind of push and pull. Uh, for people, for example, who end up in Lima, who get recorded in this tribute register, um, many of them become categorized again as Indio or as indigenous. Um, and you have uh, in other records, though, in Lima, people who end up categorized as Chino. And so you have this, this, uh, this negotiation, which has, you know, legal implications um, as to, you know, what kind of what kind of acti- commercial activities, for example, what kind of um, uh, subjecthood uh, can, uh, can somebody have uh, within the Spanish empire? The same is true when people um, cross the Atlantic and, and end up in Spain as well. They continue negotiating um, uh, these categories. Um, so let's talk about maybe one person in particular. Um, Caterina de San Juan, um, uh, who I guess becomes a, a prominent religious figure in 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 Mexico, I think. Um, but I guess who who was she, and and how did she uh, come to be in Mexico? Yeah, I, I oftentimes uh, 
describe Catarina de San Juan as, as one of the most remarkable people in, in, uh, in early modern history that many people have never heard of. But if you have heard of a single person from uh, this early mobility of Asians to the Americas, uh, it, it probably is Catarina de San Juan, who is oftentimes known by another name, um, which is the China Poblana. Um, or the the Asian woman of Puebla, Puebla being a, a city in Mexico. Um, Catarina de San Juan is extremely important, um, in part because of the extraordinary life that she lives, um, and also because of sort of how she's remembered or misremembered today. Um, so Catarina de San Juan was born... Uh, around the beginning of the 17th century uh, as Mira in uh, somewhere in South Asia. We don't know exactly where. Um, she was captured by the Portuguese in a slave trading raid. Um, as, a, as a young girl, she was on a beach. Um, and like many uh, uh, children who end up enslaved either by the Portuguese or, Span- or the Spaniards in Asia, um, uh, was simply uh, sort of snatched away and and was never heard of of again um, uh, by her family or or by her her community, and so she ends up um, on this Portuguese slave trading vessel uh, that that travels throughout uh, the Indian Ocean world. She gets baptized. Um, and she uh, is eventually traded to Spaniards in Manila. And, uh, and like, you know, many people of her time, she's traded across the Pacific uh, and, uh, and ends up in the city of Puebla um, as, as a kind of domestic, enslaved domestic servant of a, of a well-to-do Spanish family. Uh, and it's, it's there that um, she, she begins to gain a reputation as a devout Catholic which, uh, you know, raises some attention among, uh, among uh, local uh, Spaniards in Puebla who start to think of her as, you know, this symbol of the success of the global Catholic enterprise, right? She gets up, upheld as this kind of model uh, Catholic sub- subject. Um, in Puebla, she, she becomes a free person when her enslaver died. Um, and... Uh, and, you know, she, she, um, she, she, part of her fame comes from the fact that, um, that she remains a virgin throughout her life as well, uh, which is, uh, you know, a highly, highly prized, uh, a quality, um, for, for a Catholic, a devout Catholic woman, uh, in Spanish eyes. And, um, and so she, she really becomes a kind of local superstar or emblematic of, um, of a kind of local pride that, that, um, that, that Spaniards from Puebla have. And, um, uh, and part of, of what, what uh, has attracted the attention of historians and of contemporary Mexicans as well is the fact that the, the, um, the longest text to be published in colonial Mexico was about her life, uh, which is just a remarkable thing. It's this enormous three-volume um, hagiography or sort of religious biography of her life, which 
as you can imagine, um, includes a lot of sort of inflated detail about her life, this idea that, oh, maybe she was, you know, a princess in South Asia. And that sort of explains why uh, she's become so renowned in Puebla. Um, there, are, there are a lot of sort of inventions that go along with, um, with her, her, her rise to, to recognition. Um, but one of the things that really caught my attention about her story was, you know, she exists in this in-between space. There's this kind of knowability about, um, you know, her, her devotion to Catholicism. But at the same time, she remains for, um, for those who write about her, um, this this kind of perpetual foreign subject, right? There's this idea that she can never truly be known by the people around her, or there's there, she um, that she conceals from from them her her um, her nature. She's mysterious, uh, and you have this showing up again and again in the in the um, writing about her in the immediate aftermath of her death, and um, and it's in that in-between state of recognition and foreignness um, of her enslavement earlier in her life and her later freedom and the conflation between the two on the part of those who wrote about her that to me is so emblematic of this kind of fluid um, subjecthood that people, the people who are called Chinos in, in Mexico uh, have. You know, they occupy such a wide range of social possibilities. As I had mentioned, many of them end up in the Americas as enslaved people, like Catarina de San Juan. Um, other people themselves become enslavers. You know, they so you have this you have this range. Some are described as being rather um, rather light skinned or even white in some cases. You have others that are described as black, and every every a possible gradation in between. And it's that that capaciousness, that that expansive nature of uh, of the category of who Chinos were um, and the the range of experiences and, and and the the many and varied lives that they have that I think um, makes them such an instructive case uh, for examining the process of racialization of um of uh, of people who are marginalized colonial subjects within the Spanish Empire. So one one interesting thing you talk about in your book, so something I find interesting was um was the uh, let's call it the strategic use of blasphemy um, as a way to improve one's working and living conditions, um, and I guess to to explain it seems like the um, People, people would use blasphemy, um, and uh, there would be an investigation by by the authorities. And the authorities would say, "Yes, yes, there was there was blasphemy," and the person seems to sincerely regret it. And uh, and they wouldn't have turned to blasphemy if they were treated better by their owner. You know, so owner, please treat your please treat your your slaves better. Um, which I find just a very a very fascinating. Um, strategy i guess uh, a way to to use um i guess the culture of the time to kind of improve uh imp- improve your conditions um for those with not a lot of power um but i wonder if you, if you might talk more about that and kind of, and kind of what that tells us about 
um, Asians in uh, in the Spanish Empire? Yeah, they, that, that's a great question. Um, this is part of my chapter on uh, on enslavement in uh, colonial Mexico, in particular, and how enslaved Asians negotiated the conditions of their enslavement, right? And uh, and it's a seemingly paradoxical thing, right? That you would in a, in a situation in which, say, uh, uh, an enslaved Asian person is um, being punished, um, uh, uh, oftentimes these occurred uh, on plantations. These, these punishments occur on plantations, for example, or in wealthy households or in uh, bake shops known as panaderias, which were also a kind of um, confined or, or space of imprisonment even. And then, of course, there are the textile mills, which are called obrajes. And these were, uh, you know, the most brutal spaces of enslavement within uh, colonial Mexico. And so here I'm, I'm building on um, the scholarship of people like Javier Villaflores, who has written extensively about um, the use of blasphemy um, on the part of uh, enslaved Afro-Mexicans. Uh, in these spaces, uh, and it it's, it seems paradoxical that in a situation of of, of punishment, that one uh, would commit blasphemy and effectively get themselves in more trouble in order to address the cause of one's punishment to begin with. And so, let me break that down. So, basically, um, blasphemy oftentimes would trigger an, in, the, uh, an inquisitorial denunciation or inquisitorial trial. Uh, the Inquisition, of course, uh, was an institution that um, was active in Spain uh, from the late 15th century, um, was established in uh, Mexico City in 1571, and basically it policed the bounds between uh, what was considered acceptable or unacceptable religious practice. Um, the nature of the Spanish Empire was, you know, despite what we might sort of think about words like empire, it was in fact um, uh, the, the influence and sort of the power and the ability of Spaniards to impose religion and culture and language in the areas that they claimed was in fact contested at, at every level. And so um, one of the places where, where you see that the most is within enslaved communities where you have these contestations of religion and you have other religions that are forming uh, within these enslaved communities against the grain of, um, of Catholicism. And so blasphemy becomes one of those practices in which uh, an inquisitorial trial could get triggered by, uh, by somebody, uh, an enslaved Asian subject who, you know, during punishment renounces their, their, their Catholic religion. Um, this could be in the form of um, sort of renouncing God and Jesus and the Virgin Mary and the saints and all of that. Um, and uh, and so, in the best of all possible circumstances, um, the Inquisition would come in, sort of hear the testimonies of those who denounced the person who blasphemed, hear the testimony of the person who blasphemed, 
And the person person who commits blasphemy oftentimes would make the argument that they had only blasphemed because the punishment that they had received was so extreme and so unjust that they could not but sort of cry out um, against God and Jesus and the saints in order to try to get their punish- punishers, oftentimes they're enslavers or an overseer or foreman, for example, to stop the punishment. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes an enslaved person actually succeeded in getting transferred to a different enslaver um, as a result of the, this inquisitorial proceeding. Um, in the worst possible circumstance, it would generate only more punishment. It would only enrage the punisher. Once the Inquisition gets involved, sometimes they would um, require even more punishment um, for the person who blasphemes. So it's really a kind of desperate tactic to try to call attention to the unjust nature of of punishment uh, against enslaved people. And um, and as I mentioned, this is this is some this is sort of an active uh, tactic on the part of Afro Mexicans uh, in Central Mexico. And once Asians arrive, they begin to collaborate uh, within these uh, uh, spaces of enslavement and begin also participating in these tactics and spiritual cultures um, that again negotiate the conditions of their bondage. Um, so for me, these are these are the first um, Afro Asian. Uh, interactions within the hemisphere um, and are, are an important precursor to, um, uh, to similar kinds of interactions that, that um, you know, from the 19th century and, uh, and beyond. So I want to end by kind of asking what actually happens to this Asian community um, in the Spanish empire um, and, and I asked because, you know, we, we had um, another author on the show, I think, a uh, month or so ago, um, Hugo Wong, author of America's Lost Chinese, who talked about um, his ancestors, his, his Chinese ancestors, uh, settling along the U.S.-Mexico border in northern Mexico in the 19th century, I believe, 19th century to early 20th century. And... Uh, it seems like they're kind of the only ones there. I mean, there is a growing Chinese community, but it kind of grows in that period of time. It's not like, oh, there's actually been an Asian community here for centuries. Um, obviously, it, it's a different part of Mexico. It's um, it, and, and who knows if what, what people at the time actually thought, but it, but it certainly seems like there weren't very many Asians at, at, in, the, in, the, in Mexico at that part in time. Um, so what actually happens to the Asian community in Mexico, in Peru, kind of elsewhere in, in the empire? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and that's one that I begin to take up um, in my, the last chapter of my book, uh, which looks at you know, what happens during the 18th century, the early 19th century, in other words, the late colonial period. Um, because the numbers of Asians who arrive in the Americas through this Manila Galleon route um, diminishes over time. Part of the reason for that is, um, you know, people who are designated as Chinos in Mexico, they're formally emancipated from enslavement in 1672. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, the slavery 
uh, slave trans-Pacific slave trade in Asian captives ends at that point. But the fact that they're not supposed to be enslaved results in a process of gradual emancipation that lasts the, over the course of the next three or four decades after that. So consequently, um, the numbers of, of Asians arriving in the Americas diminishes. Um, however, my research shows that, you know, Asians were present and visible um, uh, sort of subsets of the colonial population uh, in Mexico through the end of the colonial period, um, you know, right up until independence. Um, and, uh, and I think there's plenty of room for uh, future scholarship to uh, to look at that early national period and to evaluate the extent to which Asians continue to be um, uh, visible in uh, in the population after independence. Uh, you're absolutely right. There's another wave of migration that has been studied in some more detail um, that begins um, uh, uh, during the 19th century uh, in the Americas through the process of, of conscripted labor or indenture. Um, that is particularly intense in the Caribbean. Um, you know, 120,000 Chinese end up in Cuba. Um, you know, my own family history is connected to, to that movement uh, to Cuba during the 19th century um, of Chinese. Uh, approximately 100,000 Chinese end up in Peru. And then, of course, you have uh, Chinese uh, in Mexico, uh, and in particular in the late 19th century under... Um, under uh, Porfirio Diaz's rule uh, in Mexico. And so, uh, and so one of the things that I'm really interested in doing by bringing the study up to the early 19th century is to complicate these distinctions between, okay, you have an early modern wave of migration, and then you have a 19th century and 20th, 21st century uh, waves of, uh, of migration to the Americas. And, um, and to show that, that that 19th century process of indenture and conscripted labor, um, which begins in Trinidad, really, um, was happening at the same time that Asians were still coming and going from Mexico through the Manila galleons. And so you have this period in which there's an overlap between what we might call the quote-unquote modern periods of migration um, of, of Asians to, uh, to the Americas and the early modern. And so I don't think it's, it's, um, it's easy to really have a, a clear divide between the two. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think that, um, that there, that there is currently a need for, for more scholarship on that sort of mid 19th century period, um, particularly in Mexico to show, um, that kind of continuity, um, in, in some more detail to, um, to the period that, that you referenced of, um, of Chinese Mexicans and in particular in that border area. Um, yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Diego Luis, author of the first Asians in the Americas, a trans-Pacific history. Um, Diego, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Yeah. So um, the book is available um, through uh, Harvard university press. 
uh, on their website. It's available on all the places uh, in all the places you might um, uh, you know look to buy a book. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Powell's Books as well. Um, as for uh, what's next, um, there are a couple things that that I'm working on right now. Um, one is is actually uh, my own podcast uh, about the book uh, in collaboration with um, uh, an award winning podcast maker uh, named Charles Fournier and my my good friend uh, Julian Saperiti of No No Boy. Um, we're making a podcast about the story behind the book, um, sort of how one's own background and life experiences inform. Uh, one's historical sensibilities and the kind of histories that we're drawn to, um, to research and write. Um, so, uh, so that's going on. And then I'm also working on a new book project, uh, which focuses, um, again, on those two nodes of trans-Pacific trade, Manila and Acapulco, and shows that um, there were uh, growing both free and enslaved black populations in those places as well. Um, that's something that, um, that has rarely, uh, if ever, uh, been written about in the history of those places. Um, so that's a story that that I've been researching and uh, and really want to tell. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on my favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week... Join us for an interview with Simon Partner, author of Kome's World, The Life and Work of a Samurai Woman Before and After the Meiji Restoration. But before then, Diego, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me.